Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also wanted to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast that I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor, and we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoy the sermon today. God bless. Wow, I didn't expect to see so many smiles and laughter with a question like this. Um, I just want to preface and apologize for such a rude awakening to your morning. Um, But I truly believe that there's, I don't know where else you would get to talk or be asked this question. And I can't think of a better place than church. Um, If you guys could do me a real one quick favor, we've got people in the hallway, we've got people on the stairs. Could everyone maybe sit a little bit more towards the middle? Maybe launch over like two seats, two seats and make some room. It's hard to kind of get across. Thank you. Oh, nice. And this is why we're going to two services. This is exactly why. It wasn't planned. It wasn't a planned ad. So I wouldn't ask you guys to share um, your deepest, darkest secrets if I wouldn't share mine. Uh, That's kind of how the thing goes around here. It's kind of the unspoken rule. And I was thinking back to my time when I think about this question. I was sitting with this a lot. And I was thinking about how early on in my faith, it was just so hard for me to get my head wrapped around this idea of following Jesus, like what it really meant Um, to follow him, to live for him, to take in his teachings and and really look at myself in the mirror. And so for me, it was a complete flip from my life. I still remember the first time that I ever felt remorse. It was when uh, one night on a Saturday night, I was so drunk and high, and I just felt for the first time uh, a little smidge of remorse because I wasn't going to be sober at church the next day. And I'm so grateful that morning that uh, my best friend made me go to church anyways. And I'll tell you, that was the weirdest church service. (laughs) But the thing is, is that um, the miracle is of Jesus is that my substance abuse and my addiction later broke that year. And I really sit with that, with what a miracle that truly was, what that really meant for me tasting these greatest highs I've ever felt and for Jesus to come into my life and say that there's a greater one, and that's in him. However, the thing is, is that my sexual addictions and my longings to feel special um, was a lot more complicated. It was a lot more nuanced. It wasn't so quickly broken. And so I struggled early. I struggled with being sexually promiscuous in the church. I was a serial dater, and and the thing about serial dating is that People are going to find out. No one keeps it to themselves. And this began to catch on, and more and more people found out. And then for the first time ever, I was um, asked to coffee by a pastor 
he was joined by two other pastors. I later found out that it was a meeting um, for this thing called discipline. And they told me, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you for laughing with me and my own traumas. Uh, and they told me I sat down at this table and they told me that we've already read all of your text messages that you sent online, so we don't need your phone. And that they've graciously paid for my new eight-week men's workshop that I'll be attending every single week. It was at 7 a.m. and it was on the other side of the island when I went to school in Oahu. And it's the equivalent of asking um, you to spend every Saturday morning to be at 7 a.m. in Oceanside or San Clemente. And kind of the twisted, sad part about it is that I don't think the pastoral staff believed that I would go. And so here I am on week five, and I had just completed week five, and I'm going to it. I haven't missed a minute. Um, they, oh, and they had told me that if I complete all eight weeks, then they will mentor me and meet with me. So I made it to week five, and my best friend who's on uh, the staff, who's interning with the church, he, he called me over and said he wanted to chat with me. And he told me that he had overheard the pastors talking in the lunchroom. It was my assistant youth pastor, my youth pastor, and, um, and the high school pastor, or, and the middle school pastor as well, too. And they were laughing and saying, I don't want, and saying that, I don't want to meet with Kevin. You meet with him. They said, I'm not meeting with him. Why don't you do it? He's your kid. And they said, I have no plans to meet with Kevin at all. And they were just laughing and talking about me and tossing me around and dumping me around. And the confusing and hurtful part about this is that I was trying to get better. I wanted to get better so badly. And I was just so confused that why no one wanted to help me. So I was deeply ashamed of my past. I remember some of my earliest prayers just crying out to the Lord, just asking for the gift of forgetfulness. I was just asking for him to burn or subdue or to eliminate, eradicate every pretty much word to erase the memories from my mind. In Luke 7, there's someone that knows what it feels like to be ashamed too. To enter a room where no one wants to be around them. The Bible calls her the sinful woman. I titled this uh, sermon this morning, The Forgiven Woman. And everyone knew her business, but no one wanted to ask her how she got there. No one wanted to ask what she had been through to be at this place. What it was like to bruise herself over and over emotionally over what she's done. No one wanted to know what it was like to not sleep well. What it was like to condemn yourself to the point of tears and to hide her face in the shadows. And it's this woman who the world calls sinner that Jesus gives a new name. Not sinner, but forgiven. So if you'd open up your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Luke 7, 36 through 50. And the scriptures say that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Quite frankly, this is a really polite way to put it. Um, she had a notoriety and had a big reputation to have this title. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisees, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Alabaster was this, uh, alabaster was this precious stone. It was like marble. 
and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Shalom, Elohim, go in peace. That is the absence of strife and instead the presence of God. I want to make a few observations around this text, and even paint a picture, if you will, that Jesus at this time is carrying out the ministry that he said he would, that when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he was preaching of this kingdom to come where there is blessed and there is woe, and he's speaking of this kingdom that is bringing a whole new set of values that this world has not seen yet before. And it even says in Luke 7, 22, that the blind are receiving their sight, and this is Jesus' ministry, the blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And if you think about crowds for a second with me, it seems kind of obvious, but crowds are made up of people, right? They're made up of individuals. And we mustn't forget that part. In Luke 5, 1, it says that one day, a few chapters earlier, that one day Jesus was standing by the lake of, of Lake Gennesaret, and the people were crowded around him listening to the word of God. Luke 6 says a large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from Tyre, from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him who had heals diseases. And if you're like me, I wonder who is in these crowds. Certainly there are individuals who have heard Jesus' very voice, who have been graced with the very words and lips of Jesus, who would have listened and embraced this call and received his free offer of forgiveness and mercy. They would have listened closely to his teachings and repented, and then they would leave those crowds never to be the same again returning to their homes now with the ultimate love of gift and grace. I bring this up because when we read about the sinful woman, I wonder when she was saved. I kept on reading it over and over again, and I thought to myself, certainly this woman was not saved at this moment, 
That would be a far cry from what the gospel is. That if she came in and brought her good deeds, she came in with her tears, she came in with some great gifts, and Jesus says, hey, I've seen your great works, let me trade you forgiveness instead. That would be a far cry from what the gospel is. But instead, we see that her great love is actually an expression of what Jesus has come to mean to her. Perhaps it was during the crowds in Judea or Tyre, but in the shadows of the crowd, maybe to not be seen because of her notoriety. And I wonder if the people next to her in the crowd, in the corners of the very crowd, were saying, what is she doing here? Isn't she the one who's from the city? Isn't she the one that trouble follows? Isn't she the one that preys on husbands and lurks in the shadows? Someone of the likes of her has no place in the presence of a rabbi. But somewhere along the timeline, her heart cried out to Jesus for the first time, and she experienced what true love is and true grace. And now in verse 36, she hears or sees that Jesus was invited to a dinner party by, by the Pharisees. It wasn't uncommon during this time to have a, a dinner to be outdoors in the courtyard. It'd be really hot in the house. They'd be having like a nice, lovely lunch out in the lawn. And it wasn't uncommon. It was very common for a rabbi to have the religious duty to host traveling rabbis that are coming into the town for the area. It was a custom of respect. It was expected to do. And perhaps maybe this rabbi was a collector of celebrities, maybe. Perhaps he wanted to test and see Jesus for himself. Whatever the reason is, we do not know for sure. But we do know that the sinful woman hears of it and is planning to see Jesus. That she goes home and grabs her alabaster flask. And she wants to declare and express to Jesus how much he means to her. In verse 37, um, I think there's a picture, there it is, a picture of an alabaster flask. Sometimes it's called an alabaster box or a jar or uh, whatever you name it. It's actually not this big. It's not size fit to scale, but it's actually very small. It's maybe like the size of your iPhone if it was like circular. And, and what it would usually contain is a few ounces of ointment or perfume or oil. The thing is about alabaster is that you know that this is the good stuff. When you saw an alabaster anything, it's usually meant it was the good stuff. And so even Solomon's temple was used, even alabaster was used to form the very columns and pillars that it stood on to represent how precious this stone really was. The Song of Songs, or Songs of Solomon, it describes the lover, the man, as having calves like alabaster columns. And I just think that's such a good pickup line. And you guys should totally try that and let me know how that goes. Um, but the woman's alabaster jar now here, commentaries say, was worth 300 denarii. And the value of that is the equivalent of about a whole year's worth of wages. A whole year's worth of wages is wrapped up in this um, alabaster jar of perfume. And, and it's the equivalent of us walking around as if we had like 50K of a bottle of like cologne. And I just pull out my pocket, I'm like, here's my 50K cologne. Every spray is like a G. <laughs> and what brings it even further to the meaning of this is that the woman, this perfume represents so much more than just money. You see, when a little girl 
uh, for this time, in Jesus' time, when she would grow up, her hopes and future would be wrapped around a husband. That was just how the times were back then, that it would be her protection, it would be her welfare, it would be her having to have kids, it would be even her social um, circumstances or cycle. Women that weren't married, that were older, they were seen as something's wrong. And so what would happen in customs is that they would be given this alabaster jar that is devoted for one reason and purpose only, and that's for the wedding night. That when they're finally embracing the love of their life, the one that they want to give their whole selves to, they would break the jar and pour out the oil and the ointment on the husband's head. And so for the woman, this was her possession. This was, the va- this was all the value that she had had is in this jar. And so it represented her future and her past, her past earnings and savings, but it represented her future security as well too. And now to take this a step further in the next slide, the woman now lays down her hair for Jesus. For us in the 21st century, this wouldn't be a big deal. I see plenty of women with their hair down. But back in the day, to let your hair down, this would have been scandalous. This honestly would have been a scandalous scene to see. Because again, on the wedding day, a woman would be letting down her hair. Her hair would be in a bun or it would be covered. And on her wedding day, she would let down her hair the one thing, one of the only things that she has control over, one of the only things that she can possess and have um, value or dominion over was her hair. It was her beauty. It was her youth. It was a woman's glory. And here is the ultimate sign of vulnerability. In verse 38, I kind of want you to notice the silence and the intimacy of this moment. You see, I read this passage time and time again, and I kept on uh, coming to a conclusion that I thought I had to figure it out until I realized that the woman actually never says a word the whole time, that the whole scene is actually completely silent. And when you read this verse 38 again and again and again and again, that the only sounds that are happening in that moment are perhaps just the tears that are running down her face and hitting Jesus' feet. Perhaps just the crack of the alabaster jar just being opened, never to be sealed again, and opened and poured out on Jesus' feet. And she's weeping, and she's here on bended knee, and she's undoing her hair. And I want you to know that this is not like this pretty single teardrop, you know, in the movies that we see that trickles down, that's beautiful. The Bible says that it was so much that it wet Jesus' entire feet, that there was this pouring from the eyes, and there was this weeping and weeping and weeping. And as she lets down her hair, holding the most valuable possession that she owns here on earth, she pours it out on the most valuable person in her life. It's It's just such an intimate moment. It's so intimate. And... And I just think about what's so, if you take a step back, what's so awe-striking about this passage is that she's doing it in the midst of her very physical manifestations of her shame and her guilt. That she's doing this in front of the Pharisees, the ones that would uh, be disgusted by looking at her presence. The very Pharisees that would probably be yelling at their gatekeeper the second she leaves, saying, how did she get into my home? Why did you allow her to defile my home? These are the people that she is doing this in front of. 
And yet she is utterly fixated and focused and wholly set on Jesus. And surrendering at his feet is displaying all of her affection, all of her love, all of her past and future and time and energy. And she's saying that, Jesus, you are the greatest love in my life. Jesus, you are more valuable than gold. You are more precious than jewels. You are my future and you are my everything. And man, I was just sitting and thinking about this. What it would be like to have eyes like this woman, to see Jesus the way this woman sees Jesus. This past week, um, I'm not ashamed to say that I've been telling people I've just been weeping at all the coffee shops in SoCal. Um, Contra, True Brew, and then Bodhi Lee. Uh, so I hit all three of those. And then Wilson just asked me, How, how'd this morning go? And I said, I teared up a little bit again. And it's because when I was sitting with this passage and thinking about this woman, there's just something so beautiful about the way she sees Jesus. There's something so intoxicating and alluring and admirable and beautiful at the way she sees Jesus. And my question I kept asking myself is, do we see Jesus like this in our lives? Do we come to God with this sinner's view with him? Do we, do we know our depravity? Do we know our sin? Do we know that we need Jesus every day of our lives? Have we held our sins before Jesus? Have we just brought them at the feet, uh, in the foot of the cross and remember that each one of those has been pinned to it? that has died, has gone down with the cross. It's been paid for in full. And is there this intimacy in how we view Jesus? That when we think of our sin and when we think of Jesus' sacrifice, that we would be overcome with emotion and gratitude. That our only response is to go back to Jesus time and time and time again and just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you've given me infinitely more. And the best part about this all is not um, that we get to like unload our sin or we get to drop it off or it's someone else's thing. The best part of this is that we get Jesus. The best part of this whole story, the whole point of this is that we get Jesus and we get to have him forever. If you're like, if you're like me, for some of us, you may have a sinner's view, but it's without God. And that's all you can see in your life is your sin. It's a condemned view of the Lord. That you can't even see God because you can't get past your sin. That your sin is all that you see. That you even forget to bring it to the foot of the cross or even remember what the cross is. You feel so unworthy, maybe like the sinful woman, to show your face that you don't do it at all. Maybe you've condemned yourself and your younger self time and time again. You've bruised him, younger you. You've called him names. You've judged him. You've spat on him in so many different forms. And can I remind us of Romans 8 that says this, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. And so we, we need to come back to the feet of Jesus too. Remembering Romans 8, 
And remembering that there's nothing, that the whole point of grace in the gospel is that there's nothing that we could do. There's nothing that we could possibly do to make Jesus love us more. And there's nothing that we could commit or do that can make Jesus love us less. You know, after um, two years had passed, I, um, since my struggles with sexual sin in the church, I called my pastor uh, just to say... <laughs> Just to say that I'm sorry. We hadn't talked much since in the past few years, and um, he just asked me, why now? Like, what's up with this FaceTime? Like, why now? I'm in another state away. And I said, um, I think if we're being honest, I hate what I did. I hate who I was. And everything about me then I, I pretty much hated that these are the worst parts of my mind, and I just want these memories gone. I just want these memories blurred or nuanced or erased or forgotten, if that's even possible. And I just remember him telling me, Kevin, that you're forgiven, that Christ had paid for that too. And he kind of parted with this thing to gift to me before he ended. And he says that it's sometimes Christ has already freed us from these chains. He has already broken us free from the bondage of that sin. But it's us that is still holding on to them. Believing that we still need to be there. Believing that we still need to be punished. Believing that there's no such thing as free. It's in this condemnation that I want us to remember Romans 8. And I want us to hold it so closely to our hearts. And that we also need to come back to the feet of Jesus time and time again. That there's grace that abounds at the feet of Jesus. And I just get this picture. I just kept on getting this picture as I was praying and praying over this passage of our younger selves just going to Jesus' arms and Jesus just holding us and embracing us and just asking us to tell us all the things that we think that we've done that are so bad. Tell me all the things that you think you've done. And he just holds us. For a lot of us, there's times we can have a Simon view of God too. It's nice to be around Jesus or to be associated with him, but we don't really feel like we need him him much to get by. Simon felt like he just needed a little bit of Jesus in his life. In verse 41, Jesus shares a parable with Simon. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he says to him, you have judged correctly. And so both couldn't pay. Both had unpayable debts. But one has been canceled of a larger debt. Of course, Simon, the one with the larger debt, will love him more. And what Jesus is really saying here is Jesus is saying, it's you, Simon. It's you, Simon, that has owed 50 denarii, and it is her that has owed 500. But the difference is, is that she greets me with a kiss. She hasn't ceased kissing my feet, and you don't. When I walked through the door, she anointed me with oil. You didn't. She is continuing to wash my feet even now, and you haven't. She loved me much, and you loved me little. What Simon failed to see was that he had no felt need for Jesus. 
He let Jesus into his home, but never his heart. And I wonder if sometimes we can have this Simon view of God, where we think we just need a little bit of Jesus. I think if it came down to it, and if we're being really honest, a lot of us would admit sometimes that there are times where our, fe- our faith just felt like a chore. It felt like it's just a scheduled block on Sunday from 10 a.m. to 11.30. It feels like it's um, just something we have to show up to. And maybe for some of us, we've grown up in church or we've been going to church for a long time, and we've done the retreats, we've done the small groups, we've done, we've served before, we've come most Sundays, but we settle for just showing up to these things. And in reality, we miss the whole part of why we even come here and gather to begin with. And that's to meet Jesus time and time and time again. To meet Jesus in small group or at Sundays or even in the quiets of our home. To say, Jesus, I need you in these small moments, not just when it gets really bad, but I need you every day. Can we be okay with just a little bit of Jesus sometimes? And so we need to come back to the feet of Jesus too and to remember to not let the things that we've done be payment. Everything we've done, our great deeds, the money that we've tithed, maybe the church attendance that we've accrued over time, it counts as no payment in God's eyes. It has no atoning power. It has no saving grace. There's no saving element to it. It cannot save us. And that's because the gospel is wholeheartedly about grace. And there's no paying off a debt that we could never pay off to begin with. If you're with me, in closing, verse 47 says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with them began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The reality is, is that the gospel frees us from all of this. It's not with our good deeds or our track record. It's not for personal gain. It's just, it's wholly for Jesus. And that's the best part every single time is Jesus. I was chatting with Wilson earlier, and I just loved my time processing with him. And we were just talking about the, 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 the depth of this passage. And as we were rereading it, we were just thinking to ourselves, and he was just sharing that how so many in Jesus' time, so many people during this time, the great crowds from all over Judea and Jerusalem, they were coming to see Jesus. But some were coming to see Jesus as a teacher, as a rabbi. And they were wanting to receive wisdom. What's going to happen next? What should I do next? And then some people were coming to Jesus with hurts and ailments and sicknesses. And they were saying, Jesus, can you heal me? You're the healer. I'm wanting to be healed. But this woman, this woman that Jesus says will be known throughout all of history. And her name will be in the books. This woman came to Jesus as her king and her God, just wanting to be in his presence. And you know, there's going to be this wonderful time. There's going to be this fantastic time where there's new heaven and new earth meeting in one, where we run into people like this, where we run into this woman. And you guys will maybe sit down with her, and you guys will chat with her. 
And you'll say, can you just tell me what it was really like to be there? And you'll say, I mean, my pastor taught on it on Luke 7. He, he didn't really come close to it. He did an okay job. But what was it really like to be at Jesus' feet? What was it like to hear his voice audibly say your sins are forgiven? Because that's what it's going to be like in our eternal home. With the gates of pearls and the streets of gold with Jesus. And there'll be this marriage with the supper lamb that is with brothers and sisters that are eating and drinking and sharing testimonies of their life here on earth. And everyone will be on the same level. There'll be no rank. There'll be no pulling one person over the other or being braggadocious. But everyone will be on the same level with their eyes fixed on Christ. And that's the promise of the gospel. That's what this is all about. Jesus, I just thank you um, for you. And God, I thank you that your grace covers each person's sin in this room and all the future and past ones too, and even abundantly more. For your grace is abundant and sufficient. Lord, I just pray that whether we have a view like this woman or a view like Simon's, or one that's a view fixated on ourselves. God, that we would come time and time again to the feet of Jesus. And we would be reminded of who we are in you, be reminded of your sacrifice and your love for us, and be home in your arms. We just want you, Jesus, and that's the best part. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-hosts together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church, and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us, on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through, um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.